All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for coming out. Schopenhauer, number three in the series on the Germans, the German philosophers. And this is the three classic German idealists, and I'll talk about what that means. Um, but I want to start off by sort of a general overview of the approach to philosophy and something that I think is often done wrong. Um, and when I was an undergraduate, I was given my introduction to Schopenhauer was his, his, his masterwork, his, The World is Will and Representation. And that's about 600 pages, depending on the edition. And we had like, you know, two weeks to read it. <clears throat> now, this is, this is criminal. This is criminal. You cannot read usefully a work of this nature in six weeks. It's sort of something that has to be read slowly over a long period of time. And so if I, I basically thought nothing of Schopenhauer because I thought, well, that book was incomprehensible. And I couldn't make heads or tails of it in two weeks. Nobody can uh, in a couple of weeks. Um, I got enough to pass the test, but that was just, you know, ephemeral, in and out. Um, and then much later, I discovered um, Schopenhauer's essays. Now, throughout his life, he wrote a series of short essays on a wide range of subjects. And they're wonderful. I mean, not, some of them are just horrifying, but they're great because they're short, they're concise, they're focused. Many of his central ideas from the world as will and representation are presented in a much more comprehensible fashion because he takes a very small subset of them. Um, he has um, articles on how to live a quality life, how to make a budget stretch, um, on history, on art, on me. I mean, he just has this huge range and like I said he, and he was sort of a great misanthrope he was a, a, a hater of people and uh, so the joke I say is, is uh, Schopenhauer hates you but don't feel bad because Schopenhauer hates everybody uh, you know and so but in these essays you get this incredible mind lucid clear and thinking and an independent mind whatever else you think of his thought is pretty clear Schopenhauer wasn't trying to impress you at any moment he was just this is what Schopenhauer thinks and I thought, when I read him, I was like, why? Why would you give an undergraduate an incomprehensible 600-page tome to read in two weeks when they could have given us a lovely selection of two or three of these essays, which give you a lot to argue about, by the way, because there's much disagreeable content. He has all kinds of illuminating things to say about women, for instance. Um, and, uh, and, and, and instead give you, these, you know, this brick and say, go. Um, and I think this is a mistake people often make. So if you're interested in philosophy and you want to read some philosophy, which I always recommend, read the original people and their original sources, you know, look for the short works. Don't start with Kant's critique of pure reason. Oh, good Lord, don't even end with Kant's critique of pure reason. Uh, but, but, you know, his, his, his preface to any future metaphysics is really short and concise and pretty moderately, relative to Kant, incredibly understandable. Um, and lots of other uh, philosophers have the same thing. They have some long works, which doesn't mean they're not important. The, the world is representation and, or will and representation is a great work, but you know you have to read it over about two years slowly and with lots of background to help you out. Um, so you know, be leery. Don't 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 think you have to start with sort of Everest. Feel free to start you know with a nice hike through a low rolling hill, uh, and I think it'll be much more pleasant. And so it's sort of. In retrospect, I got quite upset with that. I'm like, what a what a waste! What a, what's the point of that? To just baffle us and you know, sort of, sort of. I think it's just intellectual hazing. So don't so don't <laughs> fall for that. The short works are important, interesting, engaging, and easy, much easier to digest and argue with, um, and then these incomprehensible long works. Having said that, of course, we're going to spend the rest of the night talking about the world as will and representation. Um, so idealism, this is important to, to figure out what's going on here. And the, the, I think the first philosopher, probably the first philosopher to call himself an idealist was Kant. And he called himself a transcendental idealist. And what that means is nobody knows. It's like the <laughs> biggest open debate in Kantian scholarship is what the hell did Kant mean by transcendental idealism? And because it's Kant, you can't figure it out. He wrote about it for hundreds of pages, but why? But generally, if, if people, I want to, the way to get into this, I guess, is to think about Descartes' famous, I think, therefore I am. So hopefully you know this, because it's one of those brilliant little thought experiments. And he said, imagine that the world, the universe, is run by an evil demon who wants to baffle us. And so all of our sense of input is not just unreliable, but actively wrong, actively designed to trick us. 
So this is that problem of how much of the world that we sense can we trust. And he said the one thing that you have to be left with was the notion that you do think. Otherwise, there would be nothing to trick. Right? And so he said, that is where you can start. Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. This was an incredible sort of insight that Descartes came up with um, and really feeds into, first, the idealist idea from Kant, which is, yes, you think, therefore, you are, but like the evil demon, the only thing you ever think about is what's in your mind. The sense perception you have of the world is not the world. You have no access to the world. And so you just have to let go of that. And what we're thinking, and what we're reasoning about, the thinking here is reasoning, is how things enter our mind. And you, you can't ever get beyond that. So he just sort of abandons the entire notion of coming into contact with an external real world. Um, and so this was Kant's idea of, of, of idealism, as he called it, because the truth that you have is the truth generated from your own reason, which is good, but that truth is not based on anything associated in the world, which people found unsatisfactory. So he sort of gives with what like Kant always does. He gives with one hand and he takes away with the other. And so then you get someone like, well, you get Fichte and Sch you get a whole bunch of guys who, who are arguing against this, but for our purposes, you can go to Hegel, and Hegel says, well, on one hand, it's true that you only perceive what's inside of you, but what's inside of you is part of a world spirit. The world is not a bunch of separate things. It's sort of a unified thing with a lot of manifestations. And therefore, when you look inside yourself, you can discover something about the universe, or at least the universal spirit that manifests yourself and the rest of the world. And so... While it's really hard to get knowledge about what they call das Dinge, the thing itself, right? A chair, how is that, what's the real nature of the chair? You are in this active process. I should mention this, by the way. So for Kant, the world is very frozen and static. And you're in your mind, and you might grow and change, but as far as you know, the universe is just a organized totality that has nothing to do with you. Uh, Hegel says, no, it's active and developing. And you have these problems and limitations and challenges, but they're always being overcome and new challenges come along and that we're headed someplace. The world spirit and therefore us is going to an end, which will be sort of the perfection of man and the society of man. So by looking in, you can discover something about the universe and when you discover about the universe is that there's a plan and it's orderly and we're on our way someplace. And that's great. So people like this. This helped make Hegel the most popular, most powerful, most recognized philosopher in Germany during his life at the University of Berlin. <clears throat> and then into this comes Schopenhauer. And he comes from a totally different place. So his background is, is very different from most of the educated people at his time. He was, his father was and mother were wealthy merchant families. Father very much older than his mother. But both sides of the family were merchants in Danzig, um, Gdansk today. I think it's Gdansk today. Yeah, Gdansk today. Um, <clears throat> and so he was being raised to be a merchant, which means he didn't receive the classical education that would have led you into the university position, that would have led you on to be a doctor of philosophy, that would have done this. And, so, and he doesn't seem to have been like rebelling against this. It's not like he's like, oh, I'm being forced to be a merchant. He seemed to respect his father. He liked the idea. They're very well off, very comfortable. Um, and so he's like, great, this seems like a good gig, and we're going to make this work. And then his father died, probably by suicide, but it's not clear. But they, they thought, certainly uh, um, Schopenhauer and his mother both thought that, that he, his father had committed suicide. And so, wow, what do you do now? Well, his mom decided to move to Weimar, because that was a cultural capital of Germany. Of course, Goethe is there, lots of other leading lights of art and poetry, and she actually established herself as a noted writer and salon, uh, runner of a salon uh, in, in Weimar, famously visited by Goethe constantly. So she established herself as sort of an intellectual light in her own right and was published, made you know, a fair amount of money and was very well known for her novels and biographies and travel writings 
uh, in her lifetime, like 24 volumes or something. It was actually a, a, a significant contribution to letters. Um, and so uh, Schopenhauer here, he heads to college. And originally, he thinks, I'll do medicine or law. And then he gets there, and he th starts thinking, you know, I think I want to do philosophy. And he had a substantial inheritance from his father, and it, which his mother controlled, but then when he became an adult, released. And she said, look, it's your money. Do whatever you want. If you want to study philosophy, study philosophy. So at the fairly advanced age, like 20 or 21, he shifts from a sort of professional merchant, maybe lawyer track, to philosophy. But this is a big jump, because he did not go to the gymnasium system that gives him the, the grounding in all the Greek and Roman classics and gives him the languages. He had not done that systematic education that pretty much everybody else in the university would have. So he arrives at the university and decides he doesn't like anybody. He liked some of his friends, so he did have friends. So it's not that he was a complete misanthrope, but he didn't like any of the professors, particularly he didn't like Hegel, didn't like Fichte. He didn't like these people. He thought they were, they were talking a bunch of nonsense. And so he went to a bunch of math lectures, and he went to a bunch of medicine and biology lectures. Didn't seem to go to very many philosophy lectures, because it just made him angry when he went. <laughs> and so he sort of taught himself. He's kind of an autodidact. So when you look at his record of being in the university, he was there for off and on for a couple of years. But most of the time, he was really just studying himself. He was pretty much, he knew who he didn't like. And he trained himself to fight with them. That was sort of you know, one way to think of, of Schopenhauer. And so he goes with, remember, he's a man of independent means. So he doesn't have to get along with anybody. And he makes no effort to at any point in his life. Uh, and so he, he, he moves around quite a bit. Uh, and finally, he decides, OK, I'm going to write my dissertation. And he, and he writes his dissertation. As, uh, I had to write it down because I can never remember it. Four full roots of sufficient reason. And he submitted this for his PhD in absentia which means he wasn't at the university when he submitted it. The, the professors read it and said, yeah, good for you. You get a PhD. Fine. Uh, and so he's like, right. So now I'm going to go back to Berlin, where he was briefly in school, and I'm going to show those professors what's going on. I'm going to go preach the truth. And so what you could do at that point is you would apply to the university to be allowed to lecture. And if they said, OK, your qualifications are met, we'll let you lecture. That's all. You don't, they don't give you money or anything. But the people coming to your lectures, you would charge them. And so sort of a privat docent is the, is, is the sort of vague notion of this, is you're sort of a private lecturer. So you're affiliated with the university, but not paid by the university. And so your marginal position. So because he disliked Hegel immensely, and Hegel is the shining star. Hegel is at the absolute apex of his fame and power and glory. Hundreds of people come to each of his lectures. He's known throughout Germany, throughout the European world. He's a leading light of, of, of intellectual firmament. And so Schopenhauer shows up and says, right, I'm going to give my lectures at the same time as Hegel. <laughs> I'm going to show them where the truth lies. So at precisely the same time, so like a, it's like across the street from Hegel, across the hall from Hegel, who's packing them in and is world famous, he decides to give his lecture because he's got the truth. And there's no evidence that he was a very good lecturer, by the way. Um, and you know, a couple of people, three or four or five, apparently showed up once, and that was it. And so this embittered him because he thought uh, he was going to show uh, Hegel how it's done. He hated Hegel for many reasons, not the least of which he got nobody as lectures because he scheduled them at the same. It's just crazy, right? Y'all love Schopenhauer, irascible all the way. Um, so he kind of moves on from there and he writes his big work right after that. He's upset with academia and basically never has much to do with it again as long as he lives. I mean, a little bit here and there, but basically he didn't. He just said, fine, I don't have to do that. I'm independently wealthy. Uh, wealthy is probably, he has an independent means, but he wasn't like super rich. But he traveled around a lot. He could meet his expenses. He made his money last. He was smart. He was raised merchant's son. So he knew how business was done, took care of his money very well, made it last through his whole life. So he never worked. And he focused on just training his own mind and thinking for himself. Uh, but the major two works were on the fourfold, uh, fourfold roots of sufficient reason and the world as will and representation. He wrote by the time he was 30. And those were really the ground of his thinking. 
they were not recognized, and his thinking was not recognized as important for about another 20 years, 25 years. It took another couple of decades for people to start to recognize, like, hey, there's something here. Hey, we kind of like this Schopenhauer. Hey, Hegel's star is waning. People are looking around for new ideas. And then by the time he dies, last decade of his life, he really achieved something the equivalent of fame, which at that point he just thought was useless and hilarious because he's like, well, this is great. I'm famous at 70. No use for it. doesn't make me money. And I'm totally fine anyway. But people would follow him around and get his autograph and, you know, stalk him at his house. And so it was sort of bothered him. But what made his ideas famous is now we go back to the idealism idea. And this is from the world as will and idea. Two key ideas, I mean, lots of key ideas, but the two that I put here, I won't read the entire quotes, but you'll, uh, just par part of them. But he says, the world is my idea. The truth which holds good for everything that lives and knows, though man alone can bring it into reflective and abstract consciousness. If he really does this, he has attained to philosophical wisdom. It then becomes clear and certain to him that what he knows is not a sun and an earth, but only an eye that sees the sun, a hand that feels an earth, that the world that surrounds him is there only as idea, only in relation to something else, the consciousness which is himself. If any truth can be asserted a priori, it is this, for it is the expression of the most general form of all possible and thinkable experience, a form which is more general than time, space, or causality, for they all presuppose it. This is almost pure Kant. The, you don't see the sun, you only see what your eye perceives of the sun. You don't feel the world, you only perceive what your hand feels of the world. So far, so good. Pure Kantian idealism. All that you know comes from an inside of you. How it correlates to the external world, who knows? Very low to know to maybe some, but basically we're in our own heads. I think, therefore I am. I reason things out. That's what I have access to. Ah, Schopenhauer adds a second part. And he says, in fact, this is, by the way, this is introductory sections from book one and book two of the world as will and representation. Uh, in fact, the meaning for which we seek of that world, which is present to us only as our ideas, or this transition from the world as mere idea of the knowing subject to whatever it may be besides this, would never be found if the investigator himself were nothing more than pure knowledge subject, a winked cherub without a body. So brain in jar, right? If we were just a brain in a jar, then we would have no way of perceiving all this stuff. So it's got to be more than just thinking. But he is himself rooted in the world. He finds himself in it as an individual. This is to say his knowledge, which is the necessary supporter of the whole world as idea, is yet always given through the medium of the body. Ah, we're incarnated as a body. And he says, everything in the universe we perceive as an external object the I-object split, and comes to us in the Kantian sense, roughly speaking, as a perception in the mind. So that's all we know, right? This is Kant's idea so far. He says, except for one object, and that object is our bodies. We're a material object. And because we're material objects, there's one object in the universe that we actually know from the inside out. That's not an object coming to us from the outside, but that we're on the inside of. Everything else is external to us, but because we have a body, one object, we've got. So it's not pure knowledge that has no connection to real physical or metaphysical objects, because there is one metaphysical or the one physical object that's ours, and that's us, our physical material bodies. And this is his crack. And once you get that, he says, you get a lot. So what you're doing when you look inside of yourself is you're exploring a version of all of the other objects in the world, in the universe. Because you're an object that you have internal sort of ontological access to. You're not knowing it from the outside. You're not knowing it through outside perception. You're knowing it from the inside. And he says, when you look into, so this is breakthrough number one. It's important to note this. 
He says, when, when Descartes says, I think, therefore I am, Kant says, yeah, right, thinking, that's where it's at. And uh, Schopenhauer basically says, wait, where does that thinking take place? Doesn't take place in a winged cherubim, doesn't take place in a brain in a jar. It takes place in a body, no body, no thinking. So you do know something about one object in the world, absolutely, real, true, grounded, ontological knowledge. Yourself, your body, physically, as a, as a physical body. And so he goes, right, here we go. So you look inside yourself, and what do you find? And he says, what you find are a whole bunch of drives, which he calls will. And in German, by the way, this word is will. Uh, so it's very easy to translate. Except for the way Schopenhauer uses this is not how it was used in German and not how we think of it in English. There's no good translation for it. More like ego or drives in the Freudian sense. When he says will, he, but, but he predates Freud. Um, and Freud actually said when he got around to reading Schopenhauer, he said, oh, Schopenhauer predicted just about everything I wrote. Um, because of this idea that if you look inside people, there are these drives. And those drives make us do things. They, they're the drive, he basically calls it the drive towards life and the drive towards life continuance, reproduction. So he writes a lot about sexuality, which sort of blew Freud's mind when he discovered this. Uh, he, he writes a lot about um, all of the other drives that we have. And so he goes, first we have bodies that are filled with these drives. And then he makes another crucial claim or argument that is probably proven out to be relatively accurate, which is, and those drives are not rational. They're either irrational or irrational. They just don't care about rationality. This is the huge break with Hegel and Kant, basically in the, almost the entire Enlightenment tradition. You can see why Schopenhauer's stock rises fast with the Romantic movement. Because he says, at our core, we're a collection of irrational drives. So the universe is not this collection of logically perceivable, ordered either in our mind, if you want to take the, the, the Kantian method, or organized by a god, if you want to take the Catholic uh, uh, method, or organized by a, a world spirit that is rational and going to a teleology in the Hegelian sense. And he says, no, it's a bunch of irrational drives. And that drive is manifest in all living things, including things like the universe, which he saw as life, the planet, um, plants, animals, it's all got this drive, this force to uh, exist and to reproduce and to eat and to feel things. And he said, this core set of drives, irrational as it is, is what the universe is really like. And our mistake is to think otherwise. So we have access to how things really are because we have access to ourselves. And the drives that we find in ourselves when we look around in the universe, we should recognize as being everywhere. And so you can see why he had a hard time earlier in his career, because this is like, you know, he's attacking rationalism, he's attacking the attempt to get rid of the, the body as a, as a subject of contemplation. Um, he's really attacking a lot of these core fundamental principles. And the implications of this are, of course, Manifest. I mean, all kinds of problems or possibilities that are raised. Um, not the least of which is he said, okay, you have this drive. You have the drive to eat, and so you eat. And he says, and temporarily you say this, but the drive is not rational. As soon as you've eaten, after a while you'll want to eat again, and then you'll want to eat again, and then you're going to want to eat again. There's no sating these drives because they're irrational. They have no purpose except to pursue more life. They have no end goal. They, they aren't thinking. There's no past, present, or future. And so he said the only response to this is a sort of stoicism to try to let go, control, and sort of uh, abandon these drives, recognize them as these irrational base of all life, but don't let them control you. And he said the other part of the problem of this is it will create this sense of suffering. 
Because every drive that's fulfilled will be temporary, and then it will be unfulfilled, and you'll need to fulfill it again. And the cycle of suffering, he says, the only way to break the cycle of suffering is to let go of this notion of life that it, that undergirds it. And then he read some Buddhism. Uh, and he was really surprised and very gratified, by the way, to discover that many of the ideas that he had been working on quite desperately and, and he thought pretty much on his own for a couple of decades was actually very much in, in, uh, harmonized with much of the Buddhist thinking that was coming, being translated into German at the time. And so he, he was, it sort of took him aback. He was like, wow. And so he started reading the Upanishads like, like all the time, like consistently. Uh, so the last 20 years of his life, he pretty much read the Upanishads every night before he went to bed. Um, he started reading lots of uh, Buddhist texts, and it really influenced his later thinking, but maybe informed is better because he felt like he had already covered this ground. He thought that sort of he had independently arrived at this and was now having his ideas confirmed, which made him very happy. So what Schopenhauer achieves is he moves emotion, uh, drives like reproduction, sexuality, hunger, uh, and irrationality from things that are either bad, irrelevant, or just pointless to center. That's not stuff we don't talk about. That's all the stuff we have to talk about. Because this is our only content with the world as it is. Because it's inside of us. And so a way it works a little bit like Hegel's world spirit. We're all part of the universe. So we're the spirits in us and the spirits out there. But the world spirit for Hegel is this organizing principle that's on a teleological path and subject to rational reflection and sort of an amazing drive, very impersonal. Hegel's like, I mean, Schopenhauer's like, no, 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 and no. That's not what we're here to talk about. We're talking about the real emotions, the real body, not emotions in an abstract sense, not bodies in a sort of metaphysical averaged out over the human, no, your body. Your drives, your interests, where do they come from? And so when he says the world as will, what he means is the world as this collection of irrational, uh, and either irrational or irrational, like just rationalism doesn't matter to it, um, drives, and then representation, by which he means the appearance of things. So we get the world is the drives, which are the real thing, which we have contact with from within us, and then appearance, which is how the world appears to us, which we don't really have access to, because then we're back to the sort of the Kantian idea. We only get things through our senses, and then whatever we can feel is what we can think about, but God only knows what we can't feel or can't see. So the uh, examples, again, are, are when x-rays were detected, and so we could do, start doing you know, x-rays of people, all of a sudden we could see inside people's bodies, which we'd never been able to do before. It's not that the bones weren't there before. Our perceptive apparatus just didn't allow us to see them. Or when they developed radio telescopes and one of the great discoveries in, in astronomy, all of a sudden we used to just look at everything in the universe that had light, which turns out to be pretty much nothing. I mean, almost none of the universe gives off light. But if you can only perceive light, well, you look at light, and the universe seems like a bunch of stars and then a bunch of blackness. Well, now that we can see the radio spin, the x-rays, you know, all of these other spectrums, we realize that, yeah, the universe is not just a collection of little points of light. It's a whole bunch of other things as well. But we don't know that if our perceptual apparatus does not allow us to apprehend it, except, Schopenhauer argues, by looking in. And so he overthrows, at a go, like one, he overthrows Descartes, I think, therefore I am, the, the mind-body split. He says, no, you're thinking in your body, so you don't have that split. That split does not exist, just stop thinking that way. He does not like that simple dualism. They're, they're your body and your thinking is working together, which now, of course, we, we still struggle with this idea, right? We still try to, like, 
treat people like they're brains in jars or, uh, you know, as, as if they have bodies and they don't influence the mind or, you know, like psychology and body have no connection. But we, on one hand, we still think that way, but we know that's not right. So I think we're sort of even today struggling with this. In Schopenhauer's time, this was just crazy talk, right? That your mind and body are connected in this visceral way that determines a lot about how you perceive the world and how the world is. People are just like, well, come on now. No, we're getting rid of the body. The body doesn't matter. We've, we've raised ourselves above that. Um, and that just whole feeling, which is really like a cultural norm, uh, is what Romanticism, of course, comes in and, and sort of blows up. And that's why you know, Schopenhauer was adopted wholesale by many, many Romantic thinkers, again, not least of which uh, Wagner, um, and then many other writers and, and artists and musicians, Camus famously, uh, later on. So he brings the bodies and the emotion to the fore. He brings irrationalism to the fore, a problem we still have. What if the universe is not rational? Right? So, so the notion that we should be able to think rationally about the universe rests on the notion that the universe is sort of works by these rational principles and laws that we can work out and follow some sort of human reason that is sensible. Uh, Schopenhauer says, or not, <laughs> or what we're doing is we're thinking about that corner of the universe that is susceptible to rational analysis and confusing ourselves by thinking that's the universe. If our microscope or if our telescope only picks up light, then yeah, you only see that little bit of the universe that is rational. If you can expand your telescope to include things that aren't, you can see a whole lot of other stuff. And that's what Schopenhauer is trying to get us to do, which is still a problem, because how do you make rational arguments about irrational sort of <laughs> parts of, of the philosophical spectrum? Um, the, the, and I think we, we've lived through, we're, we're coming to the end of this, by the way, is for the longest time, economics in the United States was dominated by what was called the Chicago School of Economics. Mm -hmm. And the Chicago School of Economics' core argument was that human beings are rational, economic actors. Yeah. And so they have, I mean, the, the Nobel Prize after Nobel Prize was won by the, by the Chicago School of Economics people. Now, it wasn't just the University of Chicago, although heavily associated with that, but people working within that sort of economic philosophical uh, mind frame. And they said, you know, humans are rational actors, there's evidence of rational actors, and here's how they behave, and you have these models, and so that's how things are going to work. There was never any powerful evidence that humans were rational economic actors. All of the evidence runs in the other direction. We're insane with money, right? Everybody clear on this? We do stupid shit with money, right? I mean, we're just nuts, really. I mean, like crazy, you know, people, what was it? So some Japanese bank just lost $10 billion on this WeWork fiasco because some guy said, oh, we're worth a fortune. And they said, okay, here's $10 billion, which they blew. Anyway, you know, we're just crazy at, the, at every level. We're, we do not act rationally. But the problem with that is it makes economics really hard to study. And so what they had done is they had said, let's assume people are rational, despite the evidence and study those parts of economics that we would hope would behave rationally based on that. And we'll just ignore the rest. Well, the rest turned out to be everything. Right? It didn't even illuminate a little bit of the universe. It sort of clouded everything. And now, famously, we have you know, whole new schools coming up that are arguing the other way around, saying, well, look, people are not rational actors. And that's how you have to think about it. And you have to plan on that. And you have to make your economic and you know, social engineering plans based on the notion that people are sort of nuts with money. So on one hand, that's sensible, and the evidence supports it. On the other hand, it's really hard to plan for nuts. Right? It's really hard to go, okay, we're going to have an economic system that assumes that all the people in it are just, like, crazy. Right? And so it's, right? It, and then you're like, okay, what do you do? And it's like, ah, everything gets fuzzy and difficult. But Schopenhauer argued this is actually how things are. And it turns out that for economic modeling purposes, that's very much more accurate. How do you get booms and busts and uh, crazy investment scams and, you know, you know, tulip mania, all this stuff? How does, where does it come from? Well, it comes from that we're not rational. We're emotional. We're a collection of drives. Schopenhauer is absolutely 100% right on this. 
which is why, when, like I said, when Freud comes along and reads Schopenhauer, he's like, oh my gosh, he's just predicted all of the material I thought I was developing and discovering. But he came at it because he was just Schopenhauer, author on his own, reading, studying, learning, um, and, and really arguing with the, the trends around him. And so there, it took a long time, like I said, it took 30, well, I guess it was 30, yeah, 30 years actually, 30 years from when he wrote his major work to where it was generally beginning to be received and talked about and discussed. And he did a lot of other work in there, like the short essays and such that I'll read here in a second. Um, but those core principles he never varied from. He really stuck with that. We have limited apprehension of the universe through our senses, but we have a lot because we are part of the universe and we can apprehend us from the inside, as it were. So there's one object in the world we can get in, and it's us. And Descartes doesn't give you that. Hegel doesn't really give you that. Kant doesn't give you that. Um, and Schopenhauer makes that breakthrough. But again, a very difficult uh, book to read through, to sort of unravel it. But he's much clearer, by the way, than Hegel or Kant. I mean, much clearer. So I don't want to, don't be confused on that front. Um, but I do want to read uh, one section from one of his essays. So I'll give you a sense of how his essays are much clearer, more grounded, much more accessible. Right? And this one is, um, is Pererg and Paralipomenea, which is just Latin for omissions and appendices. Omissions and appendices. Omissions and footnotes, as it were, I guess. That would be a rough translation of the Latin. Um, so it's just sort of his general essays, as, as he just was sort of ephemera, as he called it pretty much himself. So this is on reading. He says, when we read, another th person thinks for us. We merely repeat his mental process. It is the same as the pupil in learning to write, following with his pen the lines that have been penciled by the teacher. Accordingly, in reading, the work of thinking is, for the greater part, done for us. This is why we are consciously relieved when we turn to reading after being occupied with our own thoughts. But in reading, our head is, however, really only the arena of someone else's thoughts. And so it happens that the person who reads a great deal, and that is to say, almost the whole day, and recreates himself as, uh, by spending intervals in thoughtless diversion, gradually loses the ability to think for himself. Just as a man who is always writing at last forgets how to walk. Such, however, is the case with many men of learning. They have read themselves stupid. <laughs> for to read in every... You can see why you got to love Schopenhauer. You, for to read in every spare moment and to read constantly is more par paralyzing to the mind than constant manual work, which at any rate allows one to follow one's own thoughts. <laughs> so... He's got bunches of these, right? He's got a bunch of these essays. This is just a selection from one essay. And you can argue with him here. What's hilarious is he's an autodidact who spent much of his life reading. Right? So this is the first thing to note about, about Schopenhauer. He read just about as much as anybody is likely to ever read. But he recognized the limitations of this. He recognized that when you read, you're taking in someone else's thoughts, just like he said. And if you read too much, you slowly lose the ability of your own thinking. Right? When do you put the book down and say, okay, now I've got to think about that or think about other things? And we always think, oh, reading is great. You know, far be it for me to say bad things about reading, right? But, but I, you know, I struggle with this myself. I think, oh, I'm probably reading too much. I have to stop reading. I need to take a break from reading. Because it just sort of over, particularly when you read people like Schopenhauer, Hegel, or Kant, or Nietzsche, these powerful, powerful writers, they sort of take over your mind because they're so big, right? They're just like, wow, wow, look at these ideas, look at these ideas. And you're like, where'd my mind go? I have no idea. I've lost it. <laughs> it just vanished, right? Uh, and clearly, uh, Schopenhauer had this experience himself. He, he knew from whence he spoke. But notice, this is not confusing. You can argue with it. What's, what's enough reading? What's too much reading? What's a mindless occupation? Is it really better to do endless amounts of manual labor? Ooh, says the independently wealthy guy who never works a day in his life. Uh, you, know, I, you know, suspicious maybe. But notice how clear and notice how... And this is not confusing, not difficult. And he's got hundreds of short essays, not hundreds, probably 50 at least, short essays of this level of clarity. And 
direct involvement and really interesting ideas. And so, you know, if you, if you want to read some Schopenhauer, I mean, for, for, yeah, knock yourself out. Go read The World as Will and Representation, right? And really, I mean, I, I can recommend it, but just set aside, you know, a month or two or three or four or five or six. Because, you know, it's, it's a slow go. That's how it needs to be read. Many great philosophical works need to be read that way. You don't need to, you know, try and, you, can't, you just can't blow through them. They're not those sorts of works. I was, my students always ask, well, how many pages is it? And I'm like, oh, it's only 20. But boy, it's 20 pages. It's those 20 pages, right? It's like 20 pages of a calculus textbook. How long does that take? You know, not a day, right? So, um, but there's all this other Schopenhauer, which shows him as being this misanthropic, irascible, hilarious, engaging uh, mind that raises all kinds of great observations. Another one of his essays that I like is he's on noise. And so he's living in Frankfurt. He lived most of his uh, later adult life in Frankfurt. Um, brief, brief sojourns, he would travel all the time, but, but mostly in Frankfurt. And, he, and it's, I just love this idea, because he's in his apartment in Frankfurt, off of a road, not even a main road, but apparently occasionally there would be, uh, wagons would come by, and the wagon drivers would crack their whips on the horses. And it just drove him mad. And he's like, no man can think in a world filled with the noise of these whips and these horses and these wagons going by. And I'm like, oh, if he only was alive today. <laughs> right? Look, I-5. Check out I-5. Right? Look at this freeway. Look at these horns. Look at the jets go over the, over the top, you know. Sort of, it, it, but, but that notion of just thinking about noise and what impact it has on our ability to think and distraction and, and how used we are to it. But he came from this much quieter world, but he hated any disturbance. In fact, he got in an argument with a woman that lived next to him about she was talking too loudly on, on sort of the hallway outside their apartments. And so it's not clear. She either fell down or he threw her down. Uh, but he was in, she was injured, and the courts decided that he had thrown her down. And so for like 20 years, he had to pay every month an indemnity to her, which pissed him off. And so when she died, he had a party. <laughs> right, which, which I just love. That's Schopenhauer right there. Throw a lady down and then have a party when she dies. Yeah, Schopenhauer. Uh, but, but, you know, but it was this notion of disturbance and being bothered and being thrown out of your rut. Um, another thing important to keep in mind, going back to the Hegel and Kant in the German tradition, and, and somebody asked before the lecture, one thing that, that makes the German tradition is quite interesting is while you have this mainstream tradition, which because of the German investment in the universities for various reasons, which we'll talk about in a future lecture, there was a lot more opportunity than much of Europe. You also had people like Schopenhauer, basically like Nietzsche, who abandoned that tradition, and people like Goethe, who never were in that tradition, who became thinkers of prominence without ever being in any sort of official capacity. That you had both university sort of things we would recognize today, you know, Hegel, Kant, Gaspers, these kinds of people. Um, but then you had this other tradition of thinkers who weren't, Holdren, uh, again, Schopenhauer, uh, Nietzsche, who left, Goethe, uh, important thinkers, important writers who just never went, went for the system, who, who just said, I can't deal with the state, I can't deal with the bureaucracy. And so Schopenhauer does not come out of the academic world pretty much at all except to say I don't like it I want nothing to do with it he's self-educated self-motivated he thought the world of ideas were important but he didn't think they needed to exist in that environment he wanted to fight that environment and work against it on one hand again easiest for him to say because he was of independent means but notice that he decided to use his independent means to further his philosophical education and to try to share his works, which he was you know, relatively successful at in a very slow building way. And so it's quite one of the riches, not the only reason, but one of the reasons for the riches is you had these sort of parallel tracks that significant minds could run. Perhaps most famously of this is Alexander von Humboldt, who was of independent means until he blew it all pursuing science. And then he was of moderately independent, sort of court-supported means 
uh, for the latter half of his right, which he blew pursuing science. You know, and so this, this, this so he was, but, but he certainly wasn't anybody's idea of, of a traditional professor or thinker, and he was, you know, absolutely world famous, as was Schopenhauer and many of these other, other thinkers. And so there were these different paths available um, that today, you know, I don't know, it's, it's, it's interesting how much we associate the, the success of the humanities and the success of philosophy or literature with the success, success of the university which the German model shows is not right because they combined for the time really incredible amounts of university possibilities relative to the time period with a, a alternative paths and it turns out it's the dialectic or the interaction of those two very different worlds that contributed mightily so you need a Hegel and a Kant but you need a Schopenhauer you need somebody outside just throwing rocks in going no I don't think so no I don't buy that um, Hegel, by the way, both Hegel and Kant, if they had tried to write essays on uh, the sex, philosophy of sexuality and human sex drives, would have been censored and probably thrown out of their university positions. Right? It would have been impossible for them. Not, not that either of them seemed of the mind to do something like that. But if they had, um, they, would have, you know, they wouldn't have had their position. Look at all the trouble Freud got in uh, a generation and a half after, or a generation at least after, uh, Schopenhauer is writing, you know, the controversy and, and whatnot surrounding him. And so, you know, Schopenhauer really is this figure who represents not just, again, this independent thinking and this incredible philosophical insight, but a whole different approach that the culture allowed and said, oh, yeah, look at these works. They're important. They're valuable. We'll take the, we'll, we'll, we'll respect them even though he's not at a university, even though he's not working at a court, even though he doesn't have these official positions. And so when you look at his life and his work, you're really looking at someone who's idiosyncratic, and that gives him his power and his insight to talk about subjects that people didn't want to talk about, to look at himself and go, look, I have all these drives. Everybody else does too. It may be that Kant didn't have those drives, if you look at his history. He may actually have been doing the same thing, but I think Schopenhauer is much more representative. He's a more representative person in many ways. And so when he looked at himself and examined himself and sort of extrapolated from that, it had a lot more power, had a great deal of heft. So I should note that the final part about uh, Schopenhauer is he did say there were ways to overcome this conflict between human reason and rationality, which he recognized, but being driven by drives that are the world as it really is, that we experience inside of ourselves, that are fundamentally irrational. And he thought, you know, meditation and reflection was key to this, which he thought was true wisdom. Music, music, he said, the thing with music is, which is the weird thing about music, is it somehow communicates directly to us without us having to think, right? You don't have to think about music. It just sort of moves you with no intermediary. And for Schopenhauer, this made music the ideal symbol of how you can resolve the drives and passions with human intellect and artistic capacity. And the model that he comes up with, again, is this, this, the, the power of music to transform us, to move us, without ever, we can't figure out why. Right? I mean, what, why is a violin in those notes with a cello and a piano? Why? You can ask that, you can think about that, but that's not the same as being moved by it. Right? And for him, it bypasses right, direct communication with the universe as it is, was possible in music. And I mention this, A, because I think it's a beautiful concept, uh, and it does seem to resonate with our experience of music, of how powerful it is without being, like it's not representing anything. Like, like painting at the time was mostly representational. And so yeah, you go, oh, I recognize that. Ah, oh, world is representation, not the real thing. But with music, it doesn't represent anything. It just moves you. That direct connection, he thought was a direct connection to the real universe. This idea is so influential that both Thomas Mann and Hermann Hesse wrote novels for which, in part, they received the Nobel Prizes for Literature in separate years based on this concept of music. 
They both had feature composers as the central characters, uh, pondering the nature of music. Dr. Faustus uh, and the Glass Bead Gang. Right? That that that. How how do you understand this ineffable power, and how does it tie into the human? And for Kant and Hegel. Hegel will let you do it a little bit with the world spirit. Kant really has no place for that. Schopenhauer says, no, this is real, this is human, this is powerful, this is central. So all the stuff that other people want to push away, sexuality, desire, food, anger, music, Schopenhauer wants to pull in and say, no, this is the stuff of philosophy. This is what we should be looking at. And so when you think about a composer like Beethoven, I mean, Schopenhauer, this is just made for Schopenhauer, right? And so when the Romantics get a hold of, of Brahms and, uh, and, and Beethoven and Wagner and Verdi, you know, they're just like, they go mad. They're like, oh, this is great. And this informs like the central concept of German Romanticism and European Romantic thought for a century at least after Schopenhauer's death. So these core concepts that now we almost take for granted, hugely controversial in Schopenhauer day, Schopenhauer's day, but he articulated them really clearly, slowly built through his life, and then when you get the breakthrough with someone like Wagner, and then people really start paying attention, you know, that then Freud, here it is, right? They start flowing out into the world. And so that's why I like, you'll, you'll hear Schopenhauer is a misanthrope, which is probably true, uh, but, and if you read him, it's pretty much true. But he was a misanthrope who loved the nature of people. It's a weird combination. He didn't turn away from mankind. He said, no, we are these weird, irrational collection of bizarre drives. It gets us into all kinds of trouble. And that's the truth, right? And that's, that's the philosophical truth that we should be looking at, not abstract, rational, reason, capital T, truth, timeless, unchanging forms but this blind, irrational striving for life and reproduction and music that makes the human world what it is and makes all of the world what it is. So, uh, yeah, Schopenhauer, thank you very much.